Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 25 of the Speaking Club podcast, and it's all about resilience. I'm working hard to develop the resilience of a ball, and whether life kicks me, something throws me, or someone tries to dodge me, I'll do my best to bounce back or have someone catch me before I fall. Oh, and if a little air should escape, I try not to squeak. Welcome to the Speaking Club Podcast, because making them laugh is the secret sauce to your speaking, pitching, and business success. And now your host, Sarah Archer. Hey, I almost called this episode One Billboard Over Bridge End, and you'll understand why after the interview. With a successful business, national awards raining down, and big, big speaking engagements, Anyone would have thought that Louise Ladbrook, my guest today, was living the life so many people dream of. But she wasn't. And after losing her health, she had to unpick the fabric of her life and try and put it back together again. Fortunately, we can learn from the mistakes Louise made. And there are some great tips for business owners, speakers and everyone trying to stay sane in our crazy, crazy world. Enjoy. What happens when you're not ready for success? What happens when the outside world thinks you're riding high, but reality is a different story? Well, we're going to find out that from my guest today and lots more. Um, Speaker, coach and trainer, Louise Ladbrook, welcome. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks very much. Brilliant. So I am fascinated by your story. Um, You you speak about it today. Can you take us through your journey? Because it's a fascinating story of, of... things maybe not appearing as they seem. No, yeah, the illusion indeed. Um, yeah, my story uh, begins when I was in a job and really loving it. So I was a technical manager in a dairy, in a factory, and I was in charge of milk quality, staff training, troubleshooting, all, all of that. And I was really good at it. I loved it. Um, I loved my job so much that I got to work one day and my baby daughter was still sat next to me because I'd forgotten to take her to a day nursery. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We've talked about it since, as you can imagine. Um, she's, she, she's been through the teenage tunnel. There has been payback. Um, so I think that's where it all began because I've done a lot of research since into what, what was driving me back then to be to, that I could forget my own child, what, what was going on there. Then my boss, oh, why do bosses do this? Oh, Louise, you're such a good technical manager. I'm going to promote you. And you cannot see my fingers doing the promote you um, to become the milk procurement manager. And he took me off the factory floor where there were about 100 of us. And he put me in a porter cabin on my own with a telephone and a computer. And I had to juggle the milk supplies, buy and sell milk on the phone all day. Uh Every morning I used to put my hand on that door handle and a little part of me used to die because it was just too awful. Um, Meanwhile, my daughter was at a day nursery, which I wasn't happy with, because when you're a quality manager and you're striving for excellence, and then you walk into the day nursery at the end of the day and it really just isn't good enough, it it bugs you, well, it bugged me. But when I loved my job, it was like having one wobbly wheel on a wagon. Yeah. So I could cope with that, because it was was like, yeah, yeah, but this is going well and that's going well, so... But then when I got to that job, which I really hated, all of a sudden it it became enormous. There were two things in my life that really weren't going well. So I did that that thing that most of us do. And I just found people who I could complain to, basically. And (laughs) we used to meet every Saturday morning for our pity party. 
and we'd have our babies on our laps and our coffees and we'd just whinge and moan as to how awful life was. And I'd walk away and I'd think, actually, I don't feel so bad. And, oh, gosh, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. You know, I can keep going. And then I became pregnant with a second child. And I can remember I was still on maternity leave. He was very young. He was about three months old. And I just couldn't believe I was going back to work into this situation and now paying for two children full-time in that day nursery and complaining to my sister one night on the phone. And she just said, oh, for goodness sake, Louise, just open a day nursery yourself. And I was so shocked, but at the same time, it was like, I didn't know what was in the skies that night, but something hit me, some thunderbolt, and my God, I was going to open a day nursery, oh, which was wow. a big shock. Let's just I, p- step back a little bit. So I just wanted to say, do you know what it was, the change that in that job? Was it because you were with people? There's, are you a social well, animal? What isolation, was- massive. And that's one of the things that I talk about, about re- yeah. resilience and the effect of isolation and what it has on you. Yeah. Um, the whole thing of starting from scratch. So um, I don't know if you know about the da- dairy industry, but at that time there was a milk marketing board. So, so and that got demolished and we had to start buying and selling out milk ourselves which we'd never done before so it was all new Um, it was literally me on my own making relationships with farmers so they could sell to us rather than selling on yeah all all new and I was on my own so there's that two types away basically shut away in a room which I hadn't happened since I'd been doing my exams in school when my mum used to shut me in my bedroom to do my exams I was back there Sarah because it's like my understanding is there's kind of two types of stress there's the stress where you've got too much to do and then there's a stress of not knowing what you're doing was yeah. that was that a sort of also a reflection of that situation uh, yeah there was a lot going on plus plus the head office was in ireland so at that time there were a couple of times when i dropped Ferrisy at the day nursery and go to cardiff airport get on a plane fly to dublin and have a meeting at one of the hotel airports to fly back and the big thing was don't tell my mum don't tell my mum that this is how i'm living my life because because I, I knew that she was the voice of reason, basically. But yeah. I was a woman on a mission at that time What to prove myself. Obviously, I've gone into it in big, big detail now since as to what my drivers were at the time. Um, because I subsequently made myself ill. But yeah, in that moment, it was like, no, I've got to get this done. I've got to get this done. Right. So, okay. So maintaining that sort of facade that everything was okay, except... It wasn't. And so tell me about this then. So you may, you thought I'm going to start a nursery. Then oh gosh. Yeah. And Sarah, you don't know me. It wasn't going to be any day nursery. Oh God, no. <laughs> it was, um, A, it was going to be the best day nursery because I was a quality manager. That's, you know, that's how my brain worked. Plus the, the, where the competition in the town was the awful one where my children were. Yeah. And then, um, and it was the days before the internet. So I literally just lied my way into as many day nurseries as I could get into and all on that subject I can say is that it, that it will come back to bite you <laughs> I cringe when I think of it <laughs> and I went to conferences and I remember one chap from a chain of day nurseries said oh the most uh, the best you can do is get a 50 place nursery so it was like okay so I'm going to go for a 50 place it took me 18 months before we opened the door because I was a woman possessed from that very moment that that thunderbolt hit. Could, could completely visualise what it was going to look like, the colours on the walls, what, what sweatshirts we were going to be wearing. You know, I could hear the sound of that laughter, never imagining that a child was going to be crying in my day nursery. <laughs> <laughs> and the music we were going to be playing. And then, yeah, there's just the sound of it and the feeling of that light coming in through the window because it was going to be south-facing. I absolutely was just completely 
yeah, dreamt it all up. And sure enough, 18 months later, it, it had happened. We opened the doors and, and it was a big slog because obviously there was planning permission, there were building contracts, tenders, all sorts. And yes, it could fit 50, 50 children. And obviously this nursery was going to be the best. So sat the nursery nurses down and, um, and said, talk to me, talk to me, how, you, how do you want this to be? Because obviously with the luxury of, there were five of us to begin with, and we could create it from literally from the ground up. And on chatting to them, they wanted to work in the best day nursery. And it was like, yes, oh, wow. I'm so happy because I want to own the best day nursery. <laughs> and so it was like, okay, so what does that look like? And they literally told me because they were all experienced, they were all qualified, they, they knew what they wanted. And because of the way that my brain works, I turned, turned it into a quality system. So from day one, I was working on the business and not in the business, which oh, I've since, yeah, I've since discovered is quite unusual and then was also key to our success. So, um, so, so yes, so you were working on the business rather than in the business, business right from the start. That's, that's excellent. And what happened next, Louise? Um, well, interestingly, we weren't filling fast enough, which was so frustrating and um, obviously days before the internet, so there were no referrals that way, it had to be word of mouth, and we weren't getting them, and then when I sat down, I realised that actually nursery nurses can't look parents in the eye at the end of the day, so the children were having the most fantastic experience, but then the parents weren't hearing about it. Ah, that's So, you know, it was, yeah, it was a bit soul-destroying in a way, Nursery nurses can't answer the phone or didn't want to, no, just used to fight not to open the door. So sat them down again and said, okay, give me the qualities of the best nursery nurses. And again, they knew. So they gave us, we came up with 16, what we call star qualities. So 16 soft skills. Number one was confidence. Number two was communication. Number three was integrity. And um, from there, we recruited on them. We trained on them, we appraised on them, and we rewarded on them. So the whole business was was wrapped up in in these soft soft skills. Um, how do you train on confidence? Well, we had weird and wonderful training days, as you can imagine. Yeah. And um, the most memorable, which my audiences all love, was, was an ex-SAS soldier who came into the nursery one Saturday and um, he started the day by teaching us how to do trust falls where we stood on the table and caught each other um, then he gave us planks of wood and told us to write down everything that was holding us back in life and I remember I had to turn mine over because it wasn't big enough <laughs> <laughs> and then at the end of the day at the end of the day he got us walking on broken glass oh it was pretty phenomenal, not least Sarah, because that evening, one of the nursery nurses went home and threw out her unfaithful husband. Wow. It was wow. It really was wow. So Monday morning, I'd walk into work and it would be full of confident, enthusiastic decision makers who were suddenly looking around them thinking, why have we always done it that way? Let's change this. Let's improve that. They were coming up with ideas. So I very quickly learned that if I was looking after them and allowing them to be their best selves, then I really didn't have to look after the business or the bottom line. That would look after itself. We used to get a lot of funding from the Welsh Development Agency and we got investors and people very quickly. And as you can imagine, with, with what we were doing, they, they loved us. So we, we were talking earlier about how did my speaking career begin. Um, they used to ask me to go and talk in different places about what we were doing and how we were doing it. And so, yeah, I suppose it really took off from there. 
and the nursery took off from there. It just really filled up. And obviously we um, became more and more successful. We ended up opening another nursery, after school clubs, holiday clubs, um, a mobile crash service, then investors in people were giving me awards left, right and centre. Then there was the whole, the Welsh Development Agency at that time had a um, promotion to become an entrepreneur. So uh-huh. they put, um, I was on billboards. If you go on my website, you can see a picture of me on a billboard. I have. Oh I have. my goodness. There's a, there's a whole raft, as I was going to pick up on this, there's a whole raft of um, newspaper cuttings and award photos and all of that stuff. Yeah, what was going on at that time. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. And, and, and your little... Um, byline under one of them was don't I look happy (laughs) (laughs) outwardly things sounded like that's the thing yeah because I was on five committees I had three directorships other than my own all this was going on and and then everybody was just yeah the success literally it was the definition of success and then as I say to my audiences okay let me just tell you what was going on on the other side of that success so number one, I was tired all the time. And not just that tired, you need a couple of good nights sleep to get over it. No, that bone, bone tired, absolute exhaustion that you just can't shrug off, whatever. Um, I was, oh, if you'd known me, I had my hand over my stomach the whole time because my stomach had started to eat a hole in itself because it was, and I didn't realize up until very recently, how where's my head? There's a word for it these days. It's called anxiety. <laughs> But it just wasn't a thing back then. Um, so yeah, I was anxious the whole time. I, um, oh, those posters, what can I tell you about those billboards? So th- there's me smiling down on myself. So I lived in a village outside of Bridgend. So I'd come into, into work on Iweni Road. But if I stopped at the traffic lights, I'd stop in front of one of those billboards and I'd see me, my smiling face, looking down on me. And it was just so painful. So I used Why to... was it painful? What was, because, what was painful about because it? Because what I was feeling on the inside absolutely wasn't what was being projected up there. Mm-hmm. And I, presumably it was airbrushed and perfection and all, all that they do with these things. And, and it was enormous. It was a billboard. Mm-hmm. And so I used to come out of my house and go the long way around and then come down Iweni Road so that if I got stopped at the traffic lights, then the poster would be on my right. So I wouldn't have to look at it. I could just go straight on. And what was causing all of this? Was it just well, the fact that you were That's the saddest time, I think, was, was putting my hand on the door handle into work and just realising little part of me is dying and how has this happened because this was my dream and it's just turned to dust and it was just yeah it was it was pretty awful um but I did that thing that we all do Sarah I kept going and that and I look back now and I don't know where I found my resilience to keep doing that but it was almost as if I couldn't look left I couldn't look right I couldn't look down I could, all I could do was just keep going because that's all I knew Plus, there's that thing when the whole world is telling you that you're doing a good job, then, then who are you to believe that you're not? Does that make sense? Yes, yeah. And they were, they were all telling me. And that was on, the, the, anybody who knows anything about Wales knows that there's the Western Mail. I was on the front page of the Western Mail, which is the national newspaper. It, it just look at Louise, look at Louise. So I kept going and um, for about, yeah, a good while, over a year. And then my dad died and I took six weeks off work because I could because the the company used to run itself because the more confident the the girls got, then obviously the more they could do and the more they did do. 
And at some points they were dragging me along with them. I was the heavy load, as it were, with my anxiety. I remember going back to work that first day and um, I couldn't do it. There were decisions that had to be made and I couldn't make them. And so I phoned, um, I was going to say a friend, but I didn't have any friends left by then because I was working all the time. But I phoned the woman who used to sell me my supplements. And I just said to her, oh, Sue, do you know anybody who does baggage? And, and I had to turn it into a joke to make it safe. Yeah. And she laughed, which I was very happy about, because it was a joke to think that Louise Ladbrook, you know, wasn't coping. And um, she gave me the name of this woman. I remember the first day walking in there and she just looked impressive and she had her certificates on the wall. And I thought, oh, fantastic. She'll tell me what to do. She'll sort me out. She'll fix me, get me back on track. And we started that first day. She did none of those things, Sarah. She just sat opposite me and she just started asking me questions. And I was just gobsmacked at what we were able to unravel. Uh And I said, and from that moment became, realized the power of questions in that I got to know my own answers so that I could fix myself. I could get myself back on track. I could sort myself out. I could find my own answers And that is my number one thing to anybody is just start asking yourself the questions. And if you can't afford somebody else to ask them, get a piece of paper, write the question down and just start answering it. Just keep, keep getting those answers onto a piece of paper. And what happens with your brain when you've released one answer? So it will go down a level and find the next one until you get down to the real nitty gritty as to what the heck is going on. What sort of questions was she asking you to sort of open those doors? Well, I can vividly remember the one about the committees. So I was on these five committees and, um, oh, Louise, you're so good at running your business. Will you come and help us, please? And there was a moment sat in those committees where I suddenly looked around the table. It was for um, the Bridgend, because I was living in the county of Bridgend at the time, um, Objective One funding, so European funding. And... There were five five hour meetings. I'm looking around the table and I'm thinking everybody's employed around this table. So actually I'm the only one who's not being paid to be here. More to the point, I'm now paying somebody else to fetch my children from school. So it was back to that thing of realizing what's going on here. And until she asked me the questions, I never even appreciated it at all. Like it was just, it was that thing of, I just kept going. So, um, and it was because you wanted to help people? Did you, did you feel well, like... This, this is what I've learned since about drivers. So there's this whole thing about, oh, entrepreneurs are so driven. It's so fantastic. They're so driven. And that, that's always struck me a bit odd because if you're being driven, that means that you're not driving, that you're being driven. Does that make sense? So yes. it means that you're not in charge. Whatever's driving you is in charge. Yes. So I've since realized that um, your drivers are your beliefs from most possibly childhoods and they're linked with dopamine so dopamine is a lovely neurotransmitter that gives us this little burst of reward so too much dopamine pushes you into addiction because literally you just love that little reward so one of my drivers was um what i call scooby snacks my friend and i call them scooby snacks or basically a pass on the head and it was like oh i was doing a good job and somebody would give me a scooby snack and They became my drivers. That was my dopamine fix. And dopamine does not care if you eat. It does not care if you sleep. It does not care if you forget to pick up your children from school. It just wants another fix. And in today's society, that's what our likes are on social media. That's what we're getting. We're getting the hit of dopamine all the time. 
you were addicted to feedback and praise basically yeah absolutely and doing a good job and so obviously then the more questions that I got asked the more of these that I could unravel and just think okay so what is important in my life and get to know myself and I know that sounds a bit stupid but I never I just got on the track and just kept on going and realized oh I'm good at this I can keep doing this but it was just like yeah you're good at it but you, do you want to do it and how much do you want to do it and to what extent so there were all sorts of questions of digging and also unraveling did it did it I don't know because the expansion and the sort of growth seems to to have happened at quite a rate did it almost feel like you were your dream was hijacked in some way by people sort of saying well you, oh but a victim of my own success yeah completely yeah. Oh, Louise, you you've, like, got, you've got to open the second one oh you've got to do this yes. you've got to do that and yeah. because I didn't know myself and because I thought they knew what was best for me then it was almost like oh I'll run over here for a bit oh I'll run over there for a bit yeah. and that was that was the thing about having somebody ask me questions so I could get to know myself better was that yes they want me to go over there but actually is that what I want yes and finding the confidence, the enormous confidence to realise that and that whole little, that little chestnut of actually saying no to them. Because that's, that's the thing, because I mean, you, you have a, you talk about not enoughness, I think. I've, I've sort yeah. of read that. Yeah. So, so this yeah, is all around imposter syndrome then. Yes, just... yeah. And at the time, I th because I did not feel like the successful entrepreneur that was winning all these prizes, oh, I got taken to Brussels to speak at one point. <laughs> and I spoke on a stage with Gordon Brown when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. Wow. With Dick Jones. Yeah, and can you imagine? I'm sitting there standing on, on this stage in front of, I don't know, 700 people in the Queen Elizabeth Conference Centre in Westminster. And, the, and I've got two day nurseries. We look after 150 children. And they're, they're listening to me, hanging on to every word. <laughs> that, that's what I mean. Well, yeah, you say it was brilliant, but I was just feeling the imposter on the inside because it was just, they're going to find out. They're going to tell you what it was, Sarah. They were going to find out any moment that I didn't know what I was doing and that I was making it up as I was going along. That's that what it was. Stress. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all the, I could have found a thousand reasons why they would have thought that I wasn't enough. So, so what that's what you find with imposter syndrome. They're very qualified people, people who've got imposter syndrome. And yeah, I went back to college and I was studying at that time and workshops and yeah, anything and everything. So I could persuade, I was just going to say that I could persuade other people, but really speaking, I was trying to persuade myself. Yourself, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so basically you'd got to this point, you'd, you'd met the, the, the person for, for questions and started to get some insight into into the situation what happened next kept going for a while uh but also i was in the very fortunate position that it could run without me so i did move away and uh left it to run itself for a couple of years then three two of the directors and another manager all got pregnant at the same time with a seven month overlap wow. so it couldn't it couldn't manage without the four of us mm. and that's when i decided to put it on the market and that, that, oh yeah, because I'd had that thought three years earlier and that whole thing about finding a quiet moment. And I've since learned that most people get their best ideas from a whisper, oh. but I was never, I was never silent. I was never, you know, I was a mum, I had this business, I was a daughter, I was a sister, I was an aunt, all those things, all those things that we are. And, um, oh, I, I, I never had any, a moment to actually sit down. So the quiet moment that I had found was lying on a sunbed in next to a swimming pool in Gran Canaria, um, 
quite a few years before and, and the whisper was just that I didn't want to do day nurseries anymore and to walk away. And it was a very scary thought that, you know, I couldn't entertain that. It was all too much. So, but that was when I moved away and, and let, let it run itself. And then with, with maternity leave, I just knew that I couldn't hold off any longer and it had to be sold. So it did sell very successfully. And I was so ill after the end of it. So it was like the second bout of being ill. Yeah. desperately desperately ill and that moment when you go to the doctor and, and they do all your blood tests and they tell you there's nothing wrong with you oh no yeah yeah it was desperate and but that tiredness back again so realizing that that I had to find more answers I had to do it another way and that was when the mindset bit came into it so the takeaways that I talk about um the most obvious one the most obvious one is um putting yourself first and I can remember being in a workshop when um, we were told to list the top 10 people in our lives the speaker was very patient as we wrote out our list of 10 and we're all trying to think oh yeah who else who else and then they just said um what number are you and we all laughed because of course that's a joke and then there was one girl in the audience who put her hand up and said oh I, I put myself as number one and there were about 40 of us in the room Sarah and and Believe you me when I tell you that we all turned to look at this woman and we were all thinking exactly the same thing. Who do you think you are? <laughs> uh, yeah. And who do you think you are to put A, put yourself on the list and B, to put yourself first? I mean, I, I Bridgend County Borough Council, Objective One Funding Committee were on my list ahead of me. They were on my list above my children. I was paying somebody else to fetch them from school. And that's the dopamine thing again. Because they were giving me what I needed in that moment. They were giving me my fix, my hit. So yeah, it was a lot to have unraveling. Um, so yeah, find out ways of putting yourself first. And that whole old adage now of, of when you're in an aircraft, we all know to put our own oxygen mask on before we put the person sitting next to us, before we help them. We've got to put our own on. And then that thought of, okay, so who in your life is sitting next to you? Who needs you to be fully oxygenated? And have all your faculties and to be on form before you can help them with theirs. And straight away, it's like, okay, yeah, it's my family, it's my business, it's my extended family. And then, so metaphorically speaking, what's in your oxygen mask? Yeah. And that's something that I talk about because um, my sister's a musician and she plays the violin and she just says she walks out of practice on a Thursday evening and down those steps and she is set up for the week. She's just on such a high she's blissed out <laughs> and I laugh because I am not a musician and I cannot think of anything worse I'd be stressed out if I was walking down those steps but then that's her oxygen mask that's what she needs so I like to ask people okay so what is it in your life what what gives you that blissed out feeling what is it what is it that that thing that that nurtures you that nourishes you and I have to say at, at this point there has not been one person in any of my audiences who have said that scrolling on social media is that thing <laughs> and yet how many hours do we spend doing it all of us even though I know what's happening I still do it oh it's so it is addictive isn't it but completely completely so, so, um, basic, so basically you 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 kind of you had this illness so presumably that's when your journey started, when you started discovering, you know, that yeah. what you needed for yourself. What's, what did you find out? What was your bliss? Cause, or did you have to change it from what it had been yeah. before? Yeah, absolutely. Cause I'm, I, my bliss is being by the sea, in the sea, on the sea, under the sea. 
Um, and I live in the Cotswolds, which as anybody knows is a long way away from the sea. <laughs> so, and, and those quiet moments where, what are you doing when you get your good ideas? We, we, it's different for all of us and it's do more of that and be aware and connected to that. And if it changes, then that's okay. Just find that other thing. So after you'd sold the, the business, was that when you Collapsed decided to do more yes. speaking? <laughs> um, I'd had an agent by then. So yes, yeah, definitely towards that end. And then after it, but then I became too ill and I really couldn't, I couldn't do anything. Thank goodness I didn't have to. I'd sold them really well, so I didn't have to work, but then I wouldn't have been able to either. So I was lucky in that respect. Absolutely. So yeah, it took about five years. Wow. And then, oh, and then Sarah, and then my mum was ill. And then I went to look after her and she was dying. I gave her my all and I knew what I was doing. Even with all the knowledge that I had, I couldn't not give my all because she wasn't going to be here for long. And then that set me off again. So yeah, I was ill about three years ago again. So I know the pattern um, and I know now what choices I have to make. And I know that my brain is the most dangerous part of all this. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. We were talking earlier about um, strategies for negative thoughts, because I can send myself down on the biggest spiral that ever existed. And, and, oh, I've got some little chestnuts again about what's the point. That's a good one with me. It's just like, oh, what's the point? What's the point of anything? What's the, what's the point of living? The, the, the whole range, as it were. Yeah. Um, and I've learned more than... I, I've learned more than anything that actually we can choose our thoughts. And that was an amazing idea when I first came across it. But actually, the more that you do it, the more you realize that, yes, I can choose it. It's just becoming aware of them. It's just stepping outside of them. Because most, when I was on that track, I really wasn't aware of most of them because I was too busy just getting on with it. But now it's trying to catch them. And the quicker you can, the more you practice, the quicker. So, some, so for example, when I was going through a really rough time and I didn't know what was going on and there's those moments where you can't stop crying and then your friend says, I know exactly why you're crying because so-and-so happened three days ago, but you didn't know it. <laughs> so it's like having that friend. And now I realize that the, the more I practice it, the quicker I am. So it doesn't take three days. So then, and then it was, you know, it took a day and then it took three hours and now then it was three minutes and now it's 30 seconds. It's like, oh yeah. It's, it's and, amazing, isn't it? I mean, one of the, I think you're absolutely, one of the biggest revelations I had in my life, and it didn't happen until, I think it was 2010, so yeah, must have been around 40 or something like that, was realizing that that voice in the head isn't you, and you yes. do have the, you know, because we think it's ourselves, and it's, yeah, our, it's our mind, and it's doing yeah. what it's supposed to do, but we can ignore it. That was and it is, it's keeping us alive. It absolutely is keeping us alive, but at the same time, it's killing us. Yeah. yeah. Because it's, it's setting off on the anxiety. And then I talk a lot about the, what happens to your body physically when you're in stress. So what happens to your adrenals? So um, unfortunately, the medical profession doesn't like the term adrenal fatigue. However, I read a lot of books and um, that's what I had. Um, so when they went testing for things and couldn't find anything, I, I had to go looking elsewhere. And because it's not funny not being able to drive. One year I drove 4,000 miles because I literally couldn't drive. I was just so exhausted. 
And yet there were doctors telling me there was nothing wrong with me. So um, yeah, adrenal fatigue. And so I've learned about the adrenals and what happens to them and what happens to our bodies when we're in that flight or fight mode or freeze. Mm -hmm. And that actually most of us are there the majority of the time now, certainly with social media going on. We're in, our bodies are on alert the whole time. And Sarah, they were not designed to do that at all. So the more that you can be aware and come back and come back, you know, to getting rid of those negative thoughts. Cause, and that's the sad thing because we can imagine, we can imagine it. So these are wonderful bodies were designed for very real threats to life. But obviously that in this day and age, those real threats aren't really there anymore, are they? We're not going to get attacked by wild animals. No. But we, we just, we, we can imagine it. So even in our thoughts, we can set up a physical reaction in our bodies. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what, that's what happens with a lot of speakers and anxiety around speaking. Is there imagining? Yes. Yeah, huge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I've hel- and I have helped speakers because of that, because there is a big overlap as to exactly what's going on. Gosh, you've been on, on, on quite a journey, I think. I think it's a hunger for knowledge to find out what the heck was going on with me. What, what, it was almost like, no, they couldn't help me. So I had to help myself. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. It does. And I think, and I'm not sure the journey ends though. I think it's, and I'd be good to get your perspective on this because the way we, we designed the way we've evolved, uh, you know, and just that sort of, I guess it, you'd call it that chimp brain, that monkey brain thing. Yes. Yes. It, it It doesn't stop. We just have to learn how to manage it better absolutely yeah and um so i'm sure you've read the ruby wax books she's on her third now about mindfulness no i um, haven't but i've seen her speak. yeah oh yeah exactly and any event that you get to speak here or speak she really helped me and one one thing that she said was that that monkey brain cannot work at the same time as our senses yeah. so just literally just feet either feel taste hear look and that's it's, as soon as you employ the part of your brain to do any of that. So if you're feeling particularly stressed in that moment and you're sitting down, just feel what, what it feels like to sit in that, in that chair, feel where the pressure is for your feet on the floor. And the moment that you do that and feel into your body, literally you've, you've switched off the stress response and how fantastic is that? You can do it instantaneously. That's, that's so true. That there's a, I don't know if you've heard of a chap called Eckhart Tolle who talks about, oh, yeah that mind, that voice being that this thing called the pain body. And the only power that it has is when you're either in the past or the, or the future. Future. Exactly what you say there. And Ruby says, if you're in the present, it doesn't, you can't, it doesn't work. It doesn't have any power. Really. really One of the things I talk about in my talks is that, that, that moment of, um, my children were seven and nine when I woke up, Sarah. It was seven and nine before I got off that track. And fortunately, working with that coach, I was able to reframe that and think, actually, they were only seven and nine. They were only seven and nine. And, and I, could, I could work with that. And then ages later, I read a book and they, um, this one journalist asked a question of one of the astronauts that stood on the moon. And he said, what was it like? What was it like to stand on the moon? And the astronaut replied, I don't remember. We got there late, we had our list of jobs to do, and we had to leave on time. And I'm just staring at this book thinking, oh my goodness, that's my life. He's just described my life. 
And my children's childhood, I, I don't remember. I, I literally had my list of jobs to do. I was always late. I was always overstretching myself and overpromising, and then, you know, not being able to deliver, letting people down because I wasn't thinking, okay, Louise, what do you want? Wow. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a lesson. I think, you know, one of the reasons, you know, we talked about before that I wanted you to come on is because, you know, speaking, I think, as a profession, like, I think you can compare it to, you know, acting or, being a musician or something where it's very competitive and it's you, you're putting yourself out there. There's an element of performance and there's also a lot of rejection. And I think, and it's quite interesting to me that you've got, you've, you've been, you've had this, this journey and now you're speaking and arguably, you know, all of the things that speakers go through that can dent people's resilience. Do you feel, you know, with the journey that you've been on, the skills that you've got, do you feel, you know, you, you're equipped to deal with it? Is it still hard for you, even though you speak about it and help people and inspire people? Is it, is it a struggle still? I think what I've learned is the more authentic you are, the easier it is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. If you stand on that stage trying to be somebody that you're not, you can forget it basically because the audience is going to suss you. They absolutely know when you're blagging. They absolutely... So if you, if you think you're, you'll feel more confident by trying to big yourself up, it's not going to work. They'll see right through you. Yeah. Um, preparation for me. Every time is preparation. In, in the early days, I say early days, um, I used to get quite nervous and I just turn into a, an interrogator when I'm nervous. So I'm shooting questions. Yeah. And so the poor organizers, who they thought I'd walk through the door, um, because I needed to know. I needed to know where do I need to stand? Who's, who's going to organize the roving mic? Is there water? Is there this? Where's my parking space? All those things, all those, all those variables. And I learned to actually, in, in my initial call, get rid of all those. So they're known, they're unknown to me at the moment, but they're things that I can actually find out about. Yes then I can get knowledge of them, understand them, and then forget about them. Because that's been a massive learning that we can, only contr- we can only control ourselves and we can only practice and prepare. And there comes that moment when you step out on the stage, you know what you're going to say, you say it, and then you just have to let it go. You literally have to let go of the outcome. I cannot control the audience. And I'm always amazed when you see um, comedians interviewed and they say oh it's my job to go out there and make them laugh and it's like oh wow so I'm on a, if I'm on a stage and I for one moment thought that I could make that audience laugh and and the old me used to chase after that the old me thought that that's that's what I was there to do and that I could do that mm-hmm. and the new me has realized actually I have no control over that whatsoever don't get me wrong it's a lovely lovely hit when you hear 500 people just having a little chuckle at something that you've just said <laughs> my dopamine just shoots off at that one <laughs> but, it's been, funny, aware of it. but it's been aware of it but it's been aware of it that's because i'm the youngest of five sarah and i had to do something to get attention in that family <laughs> you know you, you you are you're very authentic you, you know you come across as authentic there's no sort of mask with you. You you put it all out there in terms of the success, the failures, and yeah, you know, yeah. And, and I and I think I can do that because I've had so much therapy around it. I say therapy, <laughs> I mean, I've just I've got to the bottom of it, so it doesn't doesn't wound me anymore. Does that make sense? I'm not unpicking a scab anymore for want of a better expression. So it's like, oh no, it's fine. I can talk about that. <laughs> and some people in the audience are cringing, thinking, I can't believe she said that. <laughs> 
but I bet it hits home. Uh, you know, I'm pretty sure. You know, I've seen some. Speakers. I do get fabulous feedback, um, yeah. and, and also what you'll find in discussion groups afterwards: the more honest that you've been, the more honest people can feel they can be with each other, yeah. and that and that's a huge privilege. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah. Do, do you love yeah. speaking? I, I, I think it was always my thing. I was always the one to choose to speak in school. Uh-huh. And then I went to work with my dad when I left college. And so I fell into it by accident as somebody would phone the switchboard looking for a speaker. And it was like, oh, give it to Louise. She's the boss's daughter. <laughs> and, and I hadn't realized. And, and we did milk. So we used to fill milk bottles. And it's like, what am I going to speak about? Well, that's the other thing. You speak about what you know, because only you, only you can tell your stories. They're unique. So this is what people want from you. Yeah. So I used to sit there and tell them the journey of a milk bottle, about what happens after they've put it on the doorstep. And that whole thing about before, as it gets back to the doorstep. And, and I hadn't realized the power of storytelling. I fell into that by mistake. But oh my goodness, tell a story. What can I say? Just tell a story. Absolutely. And if the audience can be part of that story and the fact that, you know, they had a relationship with the milk and the milk bottle as well, so they could fill in the blanks. Yeah, audiences just, I think our brains are wired that way, aren't they? They've, they've done studies into that. Absolutely. Are you speaking, I mean, it sounds like you've had different sort of speaking journeys as well. So obviously you were speaking then, speaking for, you know, with, with Gordon Brown on stage and now you speak. ridiculous. <laughs> do, you, do you speak to a particular audience? Is there people that benefit from your message more than others or do you find it's a mixed group of sort of, I'm thinking more men or women or whatever? Um, well, I just used to think it was that I resonated more with women, but I am surprised that, no, that's not true. It is men and women. Yeah. And um, they, they deal with it in different ways, but yes. And the messages that I get afterwards, uh, yeah, they, they get me, that whole thing. Brilliant. So before we move on to my standard questions, yes. have you got any sort of final tips, things that you, the most important thing you haven't said perhaps that will help anyone who is either in the midst of a speaking career and is looking at others and comparing themselves to others and have imposter syndrome or whatever, you know, for, for getting on in this business, which is, is a hard business to get on. Any, any final tips? Um, well, reiterating what I said about being yourself, absolutely be authentic and be yourself. Um, and also that way, because I used to fear being caught out with the questions. <laughs> right. I used to fear that hugely. And, <laughs> and then my worst nightmare happened in that somebody shot their hand up for a question at the end. And they said, yeah, I've got a question. What time is it? I've got to get out of here. Or I need to get out of here. And basically, that was my worst nightmare. And nothing's ever been that bad since. So in some way, she did me a favor. But I was horrified at the time. <laughs> and and you, have you ever heard of that expression? What other people think of you is none of your business because you can't do anything about it. You've got no control over what they think of you. It's just it's very liberating when I realized that one. But having said that, that afternoon when I was driving home from that event, when she'd said that to me, I, my hands... My knuckles were white on the steering wheel and I just kept on chanting, what she thinks of me is none of my business. What she thinks of me is none of my business because it didn't feel that way at all. I was wounded well and truly. Oh. <laughs> but, she might um, not have meant it in, that, in a bad way either. No, maybe. maybe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we just never know, will we? Yeah, just back to that thing every time, be yourself and be professional. So when they ask you to speak for 15 minutes, speak for 15 minutes. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, except that when you do get invited to speak at the ambassador's residence in Brussels and you get flown over for the day and then you're told, oh, we're going to call into such and such for a briefing. 
And his briefing was to tell me that even though they told me to speak for 20 minutes, that actually I now only had 15. And I'm looking at him thinking, if you knew how much I prepared and practiced this, there is no way I'm knocking it off by five minutes. <laughs> but fortunately, it was going so well that I, I got that sing- signal from him that I could keep going. Keep going. Well, thank you for that. That's, that's amazing. Right. Now, I've got some standard questions for you. Okay. One of them we might already answered, but the first one is, what is the best thing that speaking has done for you? I just get to meet some amazing people and I get to hear their stories in, in return. And that I, yeah, that's quite humbling. I find that just incredible that people will, will share that with me. Excellent. Cool. And then the worst thing that's happened. Yeah, I've answered that one. <laughs> <laughs> Your friend. You want to know the time. <laughs> yes. Excellent. Okay. I've got one more, one more question for you. So I always ask guests this, um, there's a book called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. And mm-hmm. it was written quite a long time ago, the turn of the century, I think it was, or just after last century, not this one. Yeah, and um, he invented this thing called a mastermind group. And he had people that he used to imagine running ideas past. If you could choose three people, uh, alive or dead, past or, mm-hmm. past or present, fictional, non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Sarah, you could have tipped me off about this one. I like to know these genuine answers. Oh my goodness. So, mm, so I've got a friend that I do run a lot past. And yeah, she's, she's a real, that's one of the things I talk about. Who do you surround yourself with? Who's in your team? Yeah. And that we always know that celebrities and athletes have teams, but then why do we think that we've got to do it on our own and that asking for help is a sign of weakness? Excellent. So so who's in your team? Hashtag Team Louise. And, and literally, they don't know they're in your team, but they are there, the, the people that you need in your life to, to carry you forward. So yes, I have got some, some real people in my life. Oh my goodness. I think Louise Hay was pretty phenomenal. Cool. How do you, I, I'm sensing, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but Go on. what I, you've yeah, said, I'm thinking Ruby Wax might be someone you have. Oh gosh, yeah. Awesome. Absolutely. What an amazing woman. Not least because she put her head above the parapet and started talking about it, mental health and well-being when it was still a taboo subject. And she went there. And how phenomenal is that? Very brave. So yeah. and anyone in the business world at all? Or have you kind of just like, I've, done, I've been there, done that, I bought that t-shirt? <laughs> well, no, no. Well, there's a chap called Ricardo Semler, who's a bit of my hero. Um, I heard him speak um, 2005. Um, and he came up, find out about Ricardo Semler. He's a legend. So he's got a company in um, Sao Paulo in Brazil with over 10,000 employees. They're an enormous engineering company. They haven't got an HR department because they don't need one. Oh, wow. each, of his, yeah, each of his employees take personal responsibility for the work that they do, for communicating with each other um, and for getting the job done. It, it's an amazing organization. And he's done a TED talk. And one of the things that he says there is um, about organizing your time and how much you're going to devote to work. And he said, because we've all learned to do emails on a Sunday evening, but how many of us have learned to go to the cinema on a Monday afternoon? Oh, I like him. Yeah, you, yeah, Ricardo Semler, he is absolutely fab. So yes, can't believe I didn't, he didn't jump into my mind. Well, there you go, we got there, we got there. So yes, thank you. 
<laughs> Ruby Wax and Ricardo Semler. Brilliant. Yeah, not all at the same time. Well, Louise, thank you so much for your time and for sharing, you know, a very personal journey and with, you know, great stories and great humor. And where can people find you if they want to work with you? Because I know you're, you are, a, you're work as a coach, work as a trainer, and also obviously there's your speaking as well. What's the best place for people to get hold of you? Thank you. Um, yeah, I've got my website, uh, which is louiseladbrook.com. And that's um, with a double O-K-E on Ladbrook. And, and then I'll that in the show notes as well. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. And then obviously there's my Twitter account, which is at Louise Ladbrook. Um, there's my Instagram account, which, yes, is at Louise Ladbrook. And indeed there's <laughs> Facebook, which is Louise Ladbrook Speaker. Brilliant. So yeah, I love when people get in touch and share their stories. And yeah, I just love it. So the more that people can do that, the better. Excellent. So you heard it here. Cook up with Louise on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or have a look also at, uh, it's, it's an interesting to have a look at some of the newspaper cuttings and uh, <laughs> go and have a look at billboards. <laughs> and the billboard. I, that's you know what? I knew I had to take a picture of that billboard because I knew it was a big thing in my life, but the trauma of getting my camera and standing across the road and taking that photograph without anybody seeing me. And then when I used to be on the front of the newspaper, buying the newspapers without the shopkeeper realizing it was me. So having to buy another magazine to put on top of it. <laughs> oh dear. Yes. Well, you've got through it. You're out the Indeed. other side. Indeed. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Louise. You're an absolute star. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so time. much. Thank you. What a whirlwind. Louise is clearly on a mission to help people avoid the bear traps she fell in. And it's important to remember that sometimes things aren't as they appear, especially online. And it is right, you've got to stay authentic, show that you're vulnerable and you failed, because that makes us so much more relatable to the majority of human beings who are also struggling. And it's also important to remember to take time out to do what you love with who you love. And I've, I've had to put that in as one of my goals this year, so I'm so rubbish at it. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the show. Look Louise up if you want to share your story and do check out her billboard and how happy she looks in it. Thanks for listening. Subscribe if you like the show and if you can spare a few seconds to leave a rating or review, I'd be chuffed to bits. Thanks again and have a smashing week. Remember, grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Thanks for listening to the Speaking Club podcast at www.saraharcher.co.uk.